You're listening to Tov, a podcast about the good place and Jewish ideas. Hi, I'm John Spirisavet here, co-hosting today with Daniel Kurzane. Hey, Daniel. Hi, John. Great to be with you. Daniel, we're going to get to know you not by your professional bio, but kind of as we go along. So the, the first thing I'll ask you is, where do you rabbi? I'm in Oak Park, Illinois, which is a suburb just outside Chicago. And your congregation is called? Well, we make it easy. Oak Park Temple. Oh, Oak Park Temple. <laughs> and if you had to compare yourself to just one of the main characters of The Good Place, not for eternity, but just at the moment, who do you think you're most like? I aspire to Eleanor. I feel like she she has a good heart. She's got great leadership qualities. And the way that she is able to bring people together is something that I strive to do in my work. And that, so I'm going to go with Eleanor. You say you aspire to. So is that your answer to who do you wish you were more like or who do you think you're most like right now? I also, well, it's interesting because I, I guess I probably feel I'm more like GD now, but aspire towards Eleanor. So maybe I got the questions out of order. <laughs> That's fine. And in what way are you like GD? I can get definitely hung up in my own in my own thinking and twisted in knots. And, but also I believe in the power of philosophy to make a difference in, in our, in our characters and through us, the world. And so I, I share that with Chidi. Yes. That's why I want to be Chidi or yeah, that belief at least makes me think I could possibly be Chidi right now. Mm-hmm. Do you have a good place origin story, how you came to be interested or a fan of the show? I do. I had, the opportunity to teach my eighth grade class with another teacher in our congregation. And he told me about The Good Place. He said it was a great show, great moral lessons. In particular, I had taught The Charlie Problem and all my eighth graders had learned of The Charlie Problem through The Good Place. And so uh, on his recommendation and on the urging of my eighth graders, I went and I watched it a couple of years ago. And you got hooked right away? You know, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I wouldn't use the word hooked I was, I watched, the whole, I watched every episode. I liked it. I did not love it. Although this may come up in our, our conversation later in rewatching for our conversation today, John, I came to appreciate it a lot more. Actually, it had a, a good rewatch value for me. Mm. So I, I didn't miss a lot the first time. But yeah, I, I liked it. I liked it well enough the first time through. <laughs> Great. Well, I hope that this will be uh, the first of of more than one time that we get to talk together about it. We're going to talk today about two episodes that kind of, even though they weren't bundled in season two as like a two-parter, I thought that they kind of go together. Uh, Chapter 16 and 17, they're called Dance Dance Revolution and Team Cockroach. And uh, Daniel, why don't you give us a summary of each of the episodes? All right. Dance Dance Resolution. Michael launches his second reboot, but once again, Eleanor figures out that they are in the bad place. Michael tries hundreds of reboots, and Eleanor continues to outsmart him. One time, even Jason figures it out. In Attempt 802, Eleanor and Chidi overhear a couple of the demons complaining and realize what's happening. So they escape by train with Janet to the medium place. Mindy St. Clair reveals that they have been there 15 times already and that Eleanor and Chidi often end up in bed and one time profess their love. Meanwhile, Vicky presents Michael with a set of strike demands on behalf of all the demons, including that she be put in charge. 
and threatens that if Michael doesn't go along, she will present a full report to Sean. Michael consults Jason, who tells him the story of his dance crew banding together. When Eleanor returns, she confronts Michael, and to her surprise, Michael agrees and offers them a deal inspired by Jason's story that they all work together against Vicky. And then Team Cockroach, Michael tries to recruit all four humans to his plan, in which he will reboot the neighborhood, but secretly leave their memories intact, and they will feign ignorance. If they refuse, Michael argues, they will again figure it out. Then Vicky will expose him to Sean, and the humans will be sent to traditional torture, while Michael is burned eternally. Michael also claims he can get the four, and himself, into the real good place. Chidi agrees quickly, accepting that his work on ethics in life was unsuccessful and he needs to do this to improve. Tahani resists until Michael reveals how she died. She was crushed by a statue of her sister Camilla, revealing Tahani's self-obsession. Eleanor accedes to Michael's plan after he tells her that in every reboot, Chidi always chose to help her. She has a condition. Michael must participate in Chidi's ethics classes along with the humans. The neighborhood is rebooted, with Vicky taking on the role of a top point earner and honorary mayor. The humans, Michael and Janet, meet in secret, and Team Cockroach is born. All right. So let's fan Rob a little bit about these episodes. Anything you just loved or found funny? Well, like I said before, I was able to appreciate much more this watch, the form, and not just the content. Um, so just like the lines, the delivery, the acting, I've been listening to your, your podcast and appreciating through others appreciation. And now I had a chance. I loved the uh, chowder <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one of the reboots, everything was on a stick. And then there was a sign that said extra sticks. <laughs> so yeah, so I, I was enjoying some of the, um, some of the, the things that you can you know, pay attention to on, on a second or third watch. I miss that about the sticks. I was noticing all the different backdrops in which the people, usually Eleanor, uh, realize that it's a, a fake. The, the one time, I guess the first reboot with the, the guy in the music club and singing her a serenade mm-hmm. and and Michael on the, the bass with his cool glasses or whatever. And then one was like a barn. And... He had that line that I love. He said, whatever, whatever his line was when he says, oh, now we're up a creek. I forget what it was. It was like very, very in, in theme for the jazz opera. <laughs> yes. What you were saying before about the different, like the different themes for the, the neighborhood. I wrote down some of the restaurant names, Hokey Gnocchi, uh-huh. Sushi and the Banshees. Hawaii Five-0 for the, for the, for the Hawaiian pizza. <laughs> And I thought it was, you know, it's interesting. My my thought about these first four sections of season two is that they, they're really hard. They're a lot of work to get the plot sort of to a point where they can go back to character and philosophy. So I figured it had to be carried a lot more by the jokes. And when I watched them, I was like, oh, you know, they're... But then when I started and look at my notes, I've got like highlights everywhere of things that were funny. Like they, you know, they had to do the work of suggesting the reboots, many of them without actually having to go through everything. But, you know, mm-hmm. each, each time, when when Eleanor has to find Chidi and she meets him for the first time, she's got a different nickname, Cheeto. I noted, I noted that as well. Uh, I also th- thought that it was, you know, obviously a lot of this show is premised on the anthropomorphizing of the the demigods, like Michael and, and so on. And it's just, I, I was particularly taken by the Bad Place Hall of Fame 
where Michael wanted to be uh, next to the guy who invented bees with teeth. Yes. Just something so so vain and silly uh, and and really quite diabolical. Yes. Which I suppose fits the theme. I think there's some classic moments. There was a Jason moment where he talks about being, I think he said, too too young to be too old and too old to order off the kids' menu. That's right. I'm too young to die. Oh, too young I'm to too die. too old to order off the kids' menu. Yeah, what a what stupid it... age I am. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and I enjoy because I think actually that there hadn't been a lot of like hardcore cheaty. The end of season one, there was a lot of like big time cheaty moments and here in the in the first one we have him uh, by the blackboard teaching about he says you know hume's bundled theory of the self baby <laughs> and you know really <laughs> leading into that and she's like sounds like a real banger but got a scram yeah you know? yeah you know it's funny i actually did feel that you talked about they needed to advance the plot i did feel that in terms of the writing we did lose i think some character especially for cheaty who his main character feature is his inability to decide and I, I do feel like he was actually driving a lot of the plot mm. in terms of his ability to decide in the subplot about him choosing his soul, but also in his quick decision to go with Michael. Now, Eleanor called him out on it. You take 30 minutes to choose yeah. a sweater, but yeah. this you're sure about? But it was just a, just a convenient uh, lapse of his normal character. <laughs> so I was thinking a little bit about, you know, the great Janet moments where they're on the beach there with her reboots and mm-hmm. her different things that, that she says, what is it? Who will take care of my bird? And I had, t- <laughs> I had tickets for Hamilton and I heard that W. Diggs is going to be back. <laughs> Yes, yes. I have a baby and it's yours. I thought there was a great, you know, they, they called back this this almond milk thing of Cheaties. Yes, he I thinks noticed that, that. That that is his one sin. And he said it, it co- he, he knew it was environmentally bad, but it, it coated my tongue with a veiled film. There was kind of a theme of viscous liquid, was there not? <laughs> not just the almond milk. Oh, very good chowders. And, the chowder, exactly. Uh, and then the yak's milk. I miss the yak's milk. <laughs> yeah, so Jason and uh, Luang were uh, gifted by Michael. Oh, yes, the yak's milk, yes. <laughs> I thought that some of the great Jason moments, too, were the one where Jason's the one who figures out the, that the yes. name is up, and Michael's <laughs> like, you know, Jay, that this one really hurts. <laughs> mm-hmm. That was funny. But it was, but it was sweet, because I, I do have a soft spot for Jason. I really do. And when he tells that story to Michael, which you can tell is going to be relevant, but then he says, the end by Jason Mendoza. It's like so sweet. I really have come, as I've said before, to, to love and appreciate Jason as a character. Mm-hmm. I was loving the, I was loving the scene when Michael comes to like consult with him after Vicky's ultimatums and he says well you said a lot of words and the ones i understood were rat and and jason Jason. (laughs) (laughs) precisely (laughs) yeah you know i think that in a way eleanor and jason are kind of foils to each other because eleanor is awful but she thinks she's great jason is awful and he kind of or or he 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 accepts himself i think he has a, a a deeper appreciation of his own flaws. And, and so he's much more comfortable in his own skin than I think Eleanor is. I think mm-hmm. Eleanor has built up, I don't know if you're ever, ever gonna talk about Clipote, right? She has built up a lot of shells. Uh, yeah, Eleanor shell straw. Very good, okay. Kabbalistic, we'll put that in the notes. There we go. And uh, Jason, I think is more, he, he's more in touch with himself. Yeah. 
there's uh, I, I, there's some classic Michael, and I think that this can, this transition of him from being a you know we thought he was the we 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 all were in the dark about who he was in season one, and and he's going to become more interesting, but we're in this mode where we have to figure out how to relate to him. And I just we talk about a lot I think on the podcast about the physicality of Ted mm-hmm. Danson. He's such an imposing physical character and then he plays himself sort of off of that because he's so he's so bumbly and when you know when he's when he's foolish it's really it's really funny and so I loved his line where he talks about that when he's uh, at the beginning of the the second one here team cockroach and he's describing the situation they're in and he's like that that they something like they'll literally boil us we will be the main ingredient in a chowder of pain <laughs> <laughs> And then I think the often like the classic Michael thing about when they describe like, how does he, why doesn't he look like a lava monster like some of mm-hmm. the other ones? And he talks about everyone getting the body and he, and he says the thing about the, the hanging parts and. and <laughs> get your mind out of the gut, or I met my testicle. <laughs> See, the great thing about this podcast is where rabbis can say words like, like testicles. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I love the change of Janet's look too from the. The kind of bright blue, whatever the more pastelli season one. So she's got this more dark, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. dark uh, colors in her <clears throat> uniform. And you can you can see them playing the long game. They're already they're planting the seeds for the long game with Janet by her mentioning, you know, I've I've been you know I've been rebooted all these times. I might be the most advanced Janet in existence. That's laying the groundwork for her to develop as a character because you would think that a robot, well, not a robot wouldn't have uh, development, but but she is a point to be able to develop. And already you see the relationship between her and Jason starting to, to bloom. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, to try to recreate that because it had gone so far in the last season and and here she is at this level where she just, I think it's what, patting her head and rubbing her tummy at the same time yeah. is her conclusive proof that she has evolved to <laughs> be <laughs> the most advanced Janet ever. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the part where she uh, mentioned to Jason that she lives in a boundless void. And he says, can I go there? Yeah. She says, no, it's a boundless void. Well, so the main theme, I, so one of the things I liked about it as a, as a pair of these two episodes was Dance Dance Resolution was about being stuck in a cycle. And Team Cockroach, they break out of the cycle and they're able to project themselves on a trajectory and to be able to see themselves moving forward. But in the first episode, I, I didn't catch it even that second time I watched it, but I actually watched the episode a third time. Janet says to Michael, when he keeps rebooting her, she says, it's going to be the same every time. Mm. And that was, you know, sort of laying the theme of the episode, except I think that where we get into the, the concepts of philosophy is it's actually not the same every time. We notice that there are subtle differences. And I think most importantly, differences, there are what appear to be incidental differences in the way that Eleanor like calls Chidi a different name every time, for instance, or the method that she uses to thwart Michael's plan. Where do these differences come from? Are they only the human's response to different stimuli that Michael is introducing into the environment? Or is there, as I suspect, some essential creativity and innovativeness embedded in the human soul that you're seeing sort of on display here in iteration after iteration, which is not exactly identical. It's interesting because as you're saying that, I'm thinking about who we haven't talked about is Vicky, who is the one who seems to express this urge to create. 
she is a brilliant actor, I think, in what she has covered in these different things. And But she expresses these demands that require her to be sort of an artiste in a way mm-hmm. and on the scale that Michael wants to be. But that's sort of the thing that that was sort of part one of what gets Michael to to want to go in a different direction. He has to. He's sort of, his hand is forced. But as I think you're saying, Eleanor has this idea that things, I don't know if she has a clear idea of what, what, what the direction should be, but that things are going to start changing now also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and that is uh, in in the, towards the end of the, towards in the second episode this idea that things can change that ends up being the redemptive idea to get them off the eternal cycle is that they if they get better they have a, a target they can get to. So do you want to use this as to jump into the the teaching that you want to get us talking about? Well, one thing that came to mind for the first episode of the two dance dance resolution Chidi names the theme in talking about Nietzsche's idea of eternal recurrence, which is uh, Nietzsche proposed a thought experiment. If you could relive your entire life exactly as it was relived, that sounds like hell. Well, if you're Nietzsche, maybe, (laughs) I I, I might might not not mind it too much, but it's only a thought experiment because if you relived your life identically, you wouldn't, of course, remember anything that had gone before. And so reliving your life isn't the same as just living it. So Chidi says we're stuck in this eternal recurrence. And this came, this what, what this brought to mind for me was a great midrash on the creation of the world from Genesis Rabbah, where it's a commentary on God saw all that God had made, and behold, it was very good. Rabbi Tenhuma says that the world was created when it was due and the world was not fit to be created earlier. It was made at just the right time and it was like, it was just so. And then Rabbi Abahu goes on to say, thus we learned that the Holy One went on creating worlds and destroying them until God created these heaven and earth, this pair. God said at that point, these please me, those did not please me. So as I read Tanhuma and Abahu together, I'm seeing, um, sort of like the beginning of time even starts over every time, mm. right? That it couldn't have been created before, but there was a creation before. We just, we're just not going to count that, right? That is erased into oblivion. But of course, God remembers. That's the, that's the, that the peace that's held on. And so you have this notion of God creating and recreating and creating and recreating until what we have is what we're supposed to have, which gives a certain kind of comfort when we look around the world and we say, yeah, imperfect though it is, this is the world God wanted. This is the the right iteration. It seems to me. Tell me if I, if this connects in the same text or if I'm remembering a different one. That that originally in this imagining, God created a bunch of worlds with certain design principles, principally the the principle of judgment, which is very much relevant to the good place, bad place, and that that was not sustainable. And God had mm-hmm. to figure out a way to integrate the concept of of mercy or a softness in judgment and that that was the tipping point between the world that God would keep and the ones that God wanted to crumple up and, and reboot. Definitely. I, I, that is familiar to me. I don't think it's it, this precise one. It might be a later response to this midrash, but yeah, that, that there are interventions that can be made to the world to make it better that, that, that God is doing. And then as we step into that role in our own little micro worlds, how to, because every year is a new beginning, every day even is a new beginning, 
and it may feel like we're stuck in a, um, a pattern of eternal recurrence, but there can be ways of introducing different midotes, different characteristics and improvements that sort of break, break bad cycles and put us on a better path. So do you read this Midrash as saying even the divine can be trapped and needs something to happen? Or is God the, truly the designer who says, now I see something I didn't see before? I think what we see here is God learning, learning by doing, that God doesn't know in advance what the world is going to look like. And so God gets his hands dirty, so to speak, and starts building worlds. And I think this is reflected in the Torah text. Like you see, you see a narrative of this with the flood, where God builds a world. It apparently goes in a way that God did not predict. And then God is faced with the option of destroying the world. And instead of annihilating it, God chooses to make a change. God preserves a remnant, a righteous remnant, Noah. And then God says, I am going to change. God gives laws to Noah in a new kind of way. And, and it sets in motion a whole series of events which are going to lead to God's dwelling amongst the people in the Mishkan and later in the temple so that God realizes that God can't just let the world go on on its own or else it will spin into a spiral of darkness and chaos and despair. But with God's intervention, it can be better. So, so, God, uh, so we see this playing out in the Torah that God is, well, maybe improvising or perhaps iterating uh, in, in real time. You know, that's interesting because I guess, I don't know if this has come up in the first few episodes yet or, or in the uh, discussions with Sean at the end of season one, that Michael seems very insistent on using the same four human beings mm. and the same Janet as mm. part of the materials. And in the Midrash that you started with, is God... Is it the same sort of world? Is it the, you have the sense it's the same material being mm. sort of mushed up and made with again? I guess I imagined it being radically different. But I, I suppose if I were really going to try to think about the, the life story of this Midrash, you would imagine the world getting closer and closer to what we have now with each iteration. I suppose in contrast to Michael, it seems like he tried many different things, mm. sort of scattered. I, and this is just me reading it, I imagine the Midrash where even even these iterations have a target. God is trying to build this world. You think God trying to build a world that's going to satisfy God in a particular way, or God will, will know mm. it when God sees it? Yeah, the second. Mm. The second. I think God falls in love with the world. And maybe, maybe that's what God was waiting for. Maybe even God didn't know that that was going to happen. But I think our tradition would suggest that God loves the world. God loves humanity. God loves creation. And that's why God doesn't destroy us and start over, because God loves us. Not because we deserve it, but it's all on God. God loves us so much that God wants to keep us around. Well, it's interesting. You know, we we have to be careful in in treating Michael as exactly analogous to God, since clearly, although, although although interestingly, because Michael, you know, there are there are w plenty of ways of reading the the Torah of as God is clearly not all powerful vis-a-vis -vis humans. You know, God God leaves humans alone in the garden, or as you say, Noah for just a little bit, and they go off. You know, we go off and do our own thing. But there's there's kind of this interesting relationship where Michael and the Team Cockroach says kind of like you we're we kind of each have we're we're each possibly the solution to each other's problem and and I don't, michael's like you don't have to love me you know you're you're stuck with me because i'm your only i'm the only thing standing mm. between you and the bad place so you know and and this question of could michael be lying i guess is 
is interesting too because I think that that's another thing which comes up in the universe of the story you started us off with is that when truth is the only thing God has that actually doesn't end up being enough at least in kind of a mm -hmm. strict idea of truth and there has to be some mm -hmm. flexibility to to introduce mm -hmm. some other values and Michael Michael puts that in but then but the thing which seems to convince Eleanor in the end is not to go along with this is not that Michael is telling the truth but that Chidi one of her fellow human beings is so mm -hmm. is so committed to her and in a way she does this out of faith in Chidi more than she does out of kind of belief in in Michael's mm -hmm. sincerity it's interesting so Eleanor has she's inspired by altruism or, or connection or the desire to help. In, in contrast, the leading to a similar place, Tahani is inspired by a disillusionment. So when Michael shows her how she died, literally being crushed by a golden idol, mm. which as we're recording this is this week's Torah portion, Tahani has what, so the, the Christian theologian Paul Tillich writes about having an ultimate concern. And if your ultimate concern is in something finite, limited, you are bound to have a kind of cataclysmic disappointment. And that's exactly what happens to Tahani. She realizes as she relives her death, I was enslaved to ambition, to, to greed, to narcissism. And in, and in watching herself being crushed by as she comes to realize that she could be better than that. Yeah. And interesting, in this universe, Chidi, on the one hand, he has this project, which is that he thinks his work of thought is going to perfect the world. And on the other hand, he thinks that he that his drinking of almond milk is going to ruin mm. the world, or at least ruin his, mm -hmm. own, his own ability to, to fix the world. And he does come to this kind of certainty about what he really wants. And I think recognizing his you know, he's no longer about the comprehensive work of moral philosophy that will describe every question, but sort of how how can I become better? And that seems to be what, by pulling back uh, a little bit mm -hmm. on what he thought the goal was maybe for his life, he's able to open up something that he sees as a path ahead. Mm -hmm. I think I think he says it is our duty to improve ourselves. I, I think he, maybe he quotes Kant's. Kant. Kant. It is our duty to improve ourselves. So I think there's some interesting things in his doing that. First, from previous iteration, though this CD doesn't know this, uh, presumably Kant is burning in hell. Uh, <laughs> though, you know, we'll find maybe he doesn't deserve to be there. But nevertheless, he stays committed to these. Even in, in, in the story world, he knows that they did not earn a place. Like the, the, the Chidi who thinks he's in the good place knows that Kant is not there. Mm. And yet he still teaches his philosophy. So great is Chidi's devotion to this enterprise. And he takes it as an article of faith. It is our duty to improve ourselves. Like based on what? But it is, it is I think, for Chidi, an article of faith. But it comes, it comes to life because these abstract principles don't mean anything until he's in the classroom with Eleanor or truly until they prompt her to make the right choice. I forget what maybe, I, was it Chidi who said this? How long do you have to know someone before you do the right thing? Yeah. And you just, there's something innate, which he observes. He He's able, I think, in this moment to pierce through the intellectual obfuscation and arrive at a just kind of core truth about what humans need each other for. 
I had forgotten that this was meant to bridge us to this premise that he's going to teach everybody. It's going to set up his seminar. You know, in my first watch of the show, the, the way I remember it, and I haven't finished my like complete rewatch, is that the whole thing is structured, you know, against his lectures. But really, in season one, there weren't that many. And actually, the last mm-hmm. half of season one, there weren't that many lectures at all. And there were brief references to, you know, motivation or something like that after, you know, they were away from the, the blackboard. So I, I guess what I'm thinking as I'm listening to you is that each of their individual paths is getting linked to, is sort of a piece of this puzzle that's going to get them all to agree, even Michael. And even Janet actually has this realization like, oh, I have a, I have a purpose in this. And mm-hmm. that's how Team Cockroach, which, you know, which I don't know, I don't think that Bobcats would have been a better, you know, <laughs> would have been a better name at all, which Jason is very committed to. Mm-hmm. So you had Nietzsche at the beginning. Is the idea that living any life, good or bad, over and over again, is simply a, a kind of hell? Or wait, you know, was uh, that's that... my that's my extremely amateur understanding of what Nietzsche is trying to say. And, and I think that the episode comes to refute that idea that we are not stuck on an endless loop. That mm. there is some kind of breakthrough, and there are things which are called good things, which are real. And, you know, as, as Kant might propose, that can really make a difference and, and make a change, which I also think is very Jewish. Yeah, yeah. You know, well, it's very interesting that the people who have memory in this are Michael and the rest of the demons. Vicky mm-hmm. has a scrapbook full of everything. Yes. And Michael has his his dictaphone where he records his reflections on, on what has happened and what's the same. And what, as you're saying, things that are superficially different and, and kind of what he's learning about what's in the material he has to to work with, which is why I was thinking that the way of this midrash that you brought is that God is bringing some new elements in, but kind of there's some similar form or I don't know, format, mm-hmm. you know, the earth is round mm-hmm. in every one of these, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in every one of these iterations, but something mm-hmm. is going on. And I'm intrigued because it seems like Michael is zigzagging his way through. He doesn't learn one new thing and then like, it's a little better the next time. I mean, he goes, you know, the, the, I forget which number it is where, where Jason is the one who figured this out. <laughs> That's clearly a step backwards. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, you know, so, so in a way, Michael is caught in his own feedback loop and there's, I think there's a couple of different levels of deus ex machina here where Michael needs an advent of Vicky to shock him into a new direction. And, and, and to go down a level in each individual iteration, there is some kind of prompt or trigger, which always gets Eleanor or in one case, Jason, right? But like sometimes they go to the media place, sometimes they don't, hmm. you know, so like what, what exactly is going on? There is there is variation, but ultimately it's the same until until Michael says, I'm changing the rules now. And he's only doing that because Vicky stepped in mm-hmm. to say, I'm changing the rules. And what is her leverage? Sean is there to say, I can shut you down. And so you have, even in this system, which looks like there's, there's tight control, there's actually yet another external act. I feel like in Judaism, we have fewer levels. There's kind of like the human world and then there's God and there's not not really anything in between. And yet that which is in us that is divine allows for us to do those kinds of interventions into this world. And so if we were just animals, we are animals, but if we were only animals, we wouldn't be able to affect the, the moral developed earth. And yet as part divine animals, we are able to make some interventions which are meaningful. So I like what you said uh, a little while before about how this 
picture of God iterating is really meant to be about us doing that. Mm. And and I was putting that together with the fact that at the moment, I don't think we're that interested in whether Michael, you know, saves his skin. We're kind of a little more interested mm-hmm. in Eleanor, maybe, and Chidi. I'm still trying to get, like, I know that I love Tahani at the end of the series. I haven't quite gotten to the point at which she became more interesting to me. So their, their evolution, obviously, which is the whole point of the series, is important. But I liked what you said before about there being a line, even in the Midrash that imagines there were worlds that were destroyed and put away until this one, that even this mm-hmm. one isn't to God's, you know, total specifications yet, but but we get to the the Noah thing and God doesn't start from scratch, but kind of mm-hmm. works there. And I, right. I, I, I like that a lot. And I think that's a really interesting dimension of Judaism to say mm-hmm. that I think things could get really bad and we still, mm-hmm. we're going to still hang on to this set of ingredients and this set of characters in a certain way. And I think that the trajectory that God launches after the flood is targeted towards indwelling in the Mishkan, in the tabernacle in the wilderness. And that is almost entirely disrupted by the sin of the golden calf. And at that moment, God says to Moses, I'm going to start over with you. I'm going to wipe out the Israelites and and you're going to be, in a sense, the new Noah for the Jewish people. Uh, And Moses talks God down from that position. And so you see there, God, even there, you might see, ah, here, God is sort of going back to the old playbook. But now you have a human being who's intervening to say, no, 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 we can make this. And that prompts God to then articulate the attributes of mercy. So so just like you were saying before, John, like like a world without mercy is no world. And so he has to, to bring that in. I will say also just one note about Tahani. I, I think that she is loathsome. And I and take that to be intentional because she is exactly the type of person that we well, idolize in our world. Someone out there who's doing public acts of good and underneath there are corrupt motives and yet uh, a tremendous amount of acclaim is is afforded her. And I think one of the lessons of the series is to help us to realize that there is true nobility in the personal achievements of a person's own development and their interventions in their own world rather than trying necessarily to uh, look good on the world stage. You're touching on one of my nerves that I've talked about in other episodes, which is the importance of at least some people making changes and influencing on a wide scale. And this has come up, this the, the Hani issue that you're described has come up. I feel like we might need to have like a panel or a special about Tahani and the the ethics of philanthropists and maybe mm-hmm. get a bunch of us on for that. I was also thinking as you were talking there about about God and, and Moses again and the desire for God, even from Noah's time on, to dwell in the world, that this interesting, uh, I hadn't really noticed this, I think, or pulled this to my mind till you were talking, that uh, Michael does make this reference of he can get them to the real good place and mm-hmm. he can and he can go with them there, mm-hmm. which mm. I'm, I'm really curious about what his interest is in that. And then in Eleanor's play about getting Michael into their classes, you know, could be read in so many different ways. Like, does she just mm. want to keep an eye on him mm-hmm. or does she think she's going to change the game? And I think it's really fascinating to read the Torah as God co-evolving with us, even though, you know, not mm. in the same ways. I think that's such an important part of our mm-hmm. development. And it also forces us to 
you know, to not to not say that the point of our development is just to get closer to, you know, God's a fixed ethical point with mm-hmm. rules and principles. And we mm-hmm. just have to learn how to get closer to that. It's mm-hmm. I think our yours and my type of Judaism says it's not like that. We actually in order for that to happen, God has to grow close to us at the same time, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. You know what that means, Daniel? Because I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I get so so like in you know at every service when we talk about the when we imagine the, the the perfected world, this is a world that we describe being created in partnership between human beings and God, and and that yeah, if God wanted to perfect the world, like I guess in theory God could do it, but actually God couldn't do it because a quote unquote perfect world could only be achieved through a human God partnership. I think that's the world we live in is one in which there is a partnership between the human and the divine. I never thought of it this way. And it's an obvious thing to conclude. I've always thought about the being created in the image of God as one directional. There's God, the creator, spitting a divine spark into humans. But actually it sets up a reciprocity just as we have divine in us. Well, the same by the same principle, there's something of us in God too. And we seriously wonder on the, on the, in the story level, in the story world of the good place, imagine a multiverse where there are de- demons and angels and humans. Is there some kind of essence that is common to them such that Eleanor and Michael can connect on that level? I, I had, until this conversation, pictured demons and humans as different species, so to speak, different spiritual classes But perhaps as created beings, there actually is something shared and they're able to connect through it. Yeah, and I think we, we're going to see that one of the interesting things in the show going ahead is how Michael and, and Janet really each are trying to be more human and and sort of mm-hmm. in ways that are especially meaningfully human. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly mm-hmm. a clever trick in the story. But part of the terms, the way that you set down the terms is that whenever we talk theology, we're, we're really art talking about us and does that development Mm -hmm. does even having Mm -hmm. that idea about god it really doesn't really matter what we think about the divine Mm -hmm. but it it matters Mm -hmm. if those ideas influence how we see ourselves and i'm going to be very intrigued to try to think those things out further as we Mm -hmm. get more of a focus on michael whose story is really a a part of this season going well already Mm -hmm. and in a way that i think Mm -hmm. again i hadn't realized till started talking about these first few episodes here Mm -hmm. So Daniel, wow, it is great to talk to you. I learned so much from all the co-hosts and I'm learning so much from you. I wanted to give you a chance if you have someone who is an important teacher of ethics or getting you to think about ethics or ethical philosophy in your life. Is there someone you want to introduce to us and tell us about? I just want to tell a short story about a seed that was planted early on that bore fruit later on. My seventh grade Sunday school teacher, who was also our principal, Marcy was her name, I remember very clearly having a lesson about whether you would go to a high school graduation on Shabbat. And I remember saying, obviously, like, of course I would do that. And I said, I wouldn't go on Yom Kippur, but I would go on Shabbat. And she said, well, why wouldn't you go on Yom Kippur? I said, Yom Kippur is way more important than Shabbat. And she said, is Yom Kippur more important than Shabbat? And that just stuck with me at the time as a 13-year-old reformed Jew from Southwest Virginia, like Shabbat observance was like nowhere near my universe. But I was exposed to the concept that Shabbat could be the most important element of Jewish life. Fast forward many years, and 
my moral strivings are much more influenced by Jewish teachings than I would have predicted when I was younger. I would have, in Chidi-like fashion, thrown my lot in with the Western philosophers. But for you know, reasons we won't get into, I've really come to be very uh, moved and motivated by our specific Jewish teachings. And I'm very grateful to, to Marcy, my seventh grade Sunday school teacher, for, for uh, set, setting me on that path. Do you remember, does Marcy have a last name? Brumberg, Marcy Brumberg. Great. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for, for talking with me. And I hope we'll do this again soon. Thank you very much. It was great to be with you. And that's it for another episode of Tove. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, help us accumulate points by subscribing or giving us a good rating or review. Following us at Tove Good Place on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and mostly just by telling your fellow Good Place fans about us. You can see the Jewish texts and ideas we talked about in the show notes at tovegoodplace.com, along with links to some deeper dives into some of what we discussed. I'm John Spira-Savet, and I'm online all over at rabbijs3 for short things and rabbijohn.net for my longer writings. Thank you to Daniel Kurzain for joining me. You can read his sermons and other writings at danielkurzain.com. Thanks again for bringing our conversation into your day or whatever you're doing. Now go learn more about something good. Bum, 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 bum.